Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Just stay in the game. The minute you leave the table, you cannot win. But if you stay in the game, you're not going to win every hand. You're going to lose some hands. You're going to win some hands. But you will have your moment. But if you if you walk away from it, you can't win. So keep playing. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I want to thank all of you so much for all of your support. The 100th episode with Judd Apatow was incredible, and your letters and your emails and your texts and your tweets have been fantastic, and I'm very, very grateful. I'm also very grateful that a lot of you have gone to my website, barrykatz.com slash podcast, and clicked on the Amazon banner and purchase things through that banner, which doesn't cost you anything, but Amazon dedicates a few shekels to the Barry Katz Jewish Sons College Fund, which is a very good thing, and I'm very thankful that you guys are so supportive and do that for me and send me those great letters and emails telling me that you did so. That's so nice. Today, I'm very excited because I'm interviewing somebody who embodies personality within his name, and I'm talking about producer extraordinaire David Friendly. I've known David for a while. I was fortunate enough to take a meeting with him long ago where I met him and I loved his personality and what he was all about. And I was hoping one day I could get him in to the office to sit here. And I'm grateful about relationships because Phil Rosenthal invited me to lunch one day at a beautiful restaurant in Hollywood. And sure enough, who comes in and sits down with us, but David friendly. And it was a a really wonderful, wonderful experience. And he is here. And as always, you know that I tend to look at my guest and think of something to say as a cold open that I don't plan. And I think the the thing that comes to mind and I don't want to get sad here for anybody because I want to celebrate what I'm about to say is our business lost an iconic figure July 6th, and that's Jerry Weintraub. 
And I had the fortune of meeting Jerry Weintraub only for the first time in my life two weeks ago where I was invited to meet with him and I was invited to introduce him at his final speaking engagement he ever made at the Malibu Chabad Center in Malibu, California. And it was really an honor to do that, to talk with him, to introduce him. And he was, I believe, going to do the podcast very soon. And he obviously will not be here to do it. So I just wanted to share, like when I look across from David Friendly, I think to myself, there's different ways of producing. There's different personalities in how to produce. And there's different ways to be successful in anything you do. And, and I'm sure in any job you have, you're in the office or wherever you are or on a set or at the law firm, you know, and there's one guy who's successful, who's got this really, really calm, genteel personality that you never expect them to ever lose their temper at all. And then there's another guy in the office who's successful who literally is a type triple A personality. When he walks through the hallway, you can hear him walking everywhere he goes, his heavy footsteps. There's an energy when they walk in the room where the hair on the back of your neck stands up or else you just walk on eggshells or else you have so much respect for the person in a different way, the, the people that they've hung with that you're almost in fear. And that doesn't mean that it's good or bad. I'm just saying there's different ways of doing things. And for me, I've always been the kind of guy that responded to calm. I've always been the kind of person that felt like talent and anybody around or associated with talent or in any walk of life, I always thought that they would appreciate it if maybe I handled things with calm. I think to myself sometimes when I'm at home with my kids or with the dog or with situations and I can hear myself saying things that, that I would never be that way in business. And I think, my God, I could be that other side, that other guy if I just use this personality sometimes there and I always fight myself against it sitting across from David friendly. And I think of Jerry Weintraub and just so you know, a little background on Jerry Weintraub. And obviously this is an homage to him within this introduction. This was a guy who had similar beginnings, at least in terms of their geographical plight as David friendly, because David friendly grew up in New York in Riverdale and Jerry Weintraub in Brooklyn. And they both have produced movies that have made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they both are groundbreaking people who've done a lot of different things that you wouldn't expect them to do. And they both have a six degrees of separation with George Clooney because David's dad was the legendary news producer and CBS president, Fred Friendly, who George Clooney portrayed in the Academy Award nominated film, Good Night, Good Luck. And of course, Jerry Weintraub produced all the Ocean's 11, 12, and 13 movies with George Clooney. And when I met Jerry Weintraub, I saw a man who obviously was a guy who'd legendary, he'd been in the business for 50 years. When I sit across from David Friendly, I see a guy who's been in the business 25 years. But I see somebody whose trajectory is such that he's on that path. He's on a path where he could really take things to the next level if it's possible. 
And when I say if it's possible, because after I read uh, David Friendly's bio to you, you'll see that his movies have made more money than God. And they've been incredibly successful. But I think he'll agree, and everyone out there will agree, whether you're calm or you're not calm in business, your goal is always to take things to the next level. And Jerry Weintraub started off promoting John Denver. John Denver, everybody. So this guy's backstage listening to Thank God I'm a Country Boy. And then down the line, his career, he's producing movies with George Clooney that are getting nominated for Academy Awards or producing documentaries, which also David Friendly is doing that we're going to talk about. I believe Jerry Weintraub did Behind the Candelabra, which won, I think, 11 Emmy Awards. And so I see David Friendly, I sit across from him and I see somebody who's on the path of Jerry and having met Jerry, I just want to share with all of you that whatever job you're in, it's not just about doing one thing and doing one thing well. Yes, there's a lot of people who do one thing and one thing well, and they're very successful and they're very happy. But my feeling is this, and I could be alone, but my opinion is, is that if you're going to do something in this world, chances are you have more than one skill set. You have more than one talent. You have more than one thing that you can do. And if you're just going along and doing one thing and doing one thing well, not only I think are you doing a disservice to yourself, but you're doing a disservice to all the people that you're going to inspire along the way. And my feeling is, is that as I sit with David, he's inspired me. And when I met Jerry Weintraub and it was a great loss, he inspired me also because he let me know that I think and I hope that I'm on the right path when I do different things like this podcast in my spare time that's reached so many people. And so my message to all of you out there is don't be afraid to do more than one thing. Don't be afraid to go out there and explore more dreams. Yes, you may fail, but then when you fail or if you fail, there's always the next talent you have. And that's my message for today. Just go for your dreams, go for what you can do and keep thinking about your talents and how you can exploit them in the best possible ways. And I can guarantee you, your life will expand to new horizons. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I hope you don't mind. I want to talk more about your relationship with your dad because. What do you charge? (laughs) It's free like the internship you have. (laughs) You can prescribe. I wish you could prescribe some pills for me. I could use some, but they're different kind of pills. So the relationship father and son is so complicated. And as your father got older and. Before he died, you did something that you finally felt that he was proud of. But, you know, he's later on in life. And every time you see him, you probably think to yourself, as I think about Jerry and I think about the late Chris Thompson, who I interviewed here two months ago, 
you have this feeling sometimes, like when I met Jerry and I talked with Jerry, I really had this feeling this is the last time I'm going to see him, even though I had every intention of him doing the podcast. Same with Chris Thompson. I interviewed him here. And is there a point when you have that relationship with your dad and you're farther along in your career and he's farther along in his that every time you see him, you think, is this the last time I'm going to see him? Well, in the case with my own dad, he, he got sick and had some issues with strokes and it was a long tail as opposed to a short tail. So once he was sick and I was in LA and he was in New York, you d- I definitely had those thoughts when I would go up to the house in Riverdale and I'd see him and I said, I wonder if this is, wonder if this is going to be the last time I actually see him in person. Um, the, the great thing about my, my dad for me was, you know, he lived to 82. He did everything he could have possibly done in journalism and more. He had a, he had a great family and, and uh, you know, he, came from very simple background upbringing new york providence nothing was expected of him and yet he scaled these incredible heights and you know on some level for me getting that movie made having my name on it as the producer meant that in some small way i kind of measured up i think that was the pressure i put on myself throughout my life as a kid and um a lot of it was just in my head. He wasn't demanding anything, but it, but it was pressure I put on myself. Um, and I think that's what I try to, with my own kids, I have, a, I have a son who's 20 years old and a daughter is 21. Both are at USC. And, and I've really tried to change the dynamic there a little bit in that I tell people my, my relationship with my father was a handshake, not a hug. It was a different time, different generation. A lot of handshakes, not a lot of hugs. And so raising my children, I was always like the hugger, you know, very much more uh, affectionate and and trying to uh, sort of make them feel uh, as as comfortable with me as possible, not, not, not allow that sort of distance of the traditional father-son relationship, which to be fair was much more prevalent in that time, sure with I don't know what it was like with your father. That's what it was like with mine. How many times did your father tell you that he loved you? Well, I don't know how many times he said those words, but he demonstrated that love, you know, constantly. Whether he was sitting at the dining room table with me and both of us were terrible at math and not giving up and trying to help me with my fractions or showing up at a, at a football game at, at Riverdale Country Day where I wasn't even starting, but he came anyway, he showed me that. But how many times did he say those things? Not many. It was not his style. And I bet it's just the opposite with your children. Yeah, it is just the opposite. And I think you react. You, uh, you kind of go the other direction, and maybe there's an argument that a firmer hand, who knows where the middle ground is, you know? I think that's what I always worry with my kids. You hear all these stories about people who nobody said they loved you, nobody hugged them, and they become successful like you. I'm wondering if I'm going to be loving and hug my kids if they're going to be homeless and saying, Daddy, could you send me a check? I've decided I'm going to just hang out here in this place. Well, I also think, you know, it's important. Like, my parents were divorced when I was about 11 years old, and a a woman came into our house that my father got remarried to, who was a schoolteacher, who literally changed my life. Like I was headed in a very bad way, wrong direction, doing a lot of 
illegal things and probably would have gone, you know, gone to jail or something had it not been for her. She was a saint and I got tremendous affection and, and positive support. And she was a school teacher and she helped me turn my grades around and got me interested in books. So it was a little bit of both. That's really fascinating because normally the divorce is the hole that's blown through you right? and you never recover. And normally when a a woman comes into the household, it's like, she's the enemy. She must've been an extraordinary woman. She was and is, she's still alive. Her name is Ruth friendly. She was a school teacher in Scarsdale. She's over 90. She won't let me tell you her age. She drives into the city every night. She goes to the opera still drives herself around. She's got a busier calendar than you or I put together. And she's like a saint, you know? And you haven't talked a lot about your mom. No. Now, my mom was a very talented artist, married to my father for 20 years, went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, used to draw the family Christmas cards every year, you know, beautiful. And was a very, very loving, very good person who did not, hold up well under the strain of being married to Fred Friendly. Now, some of that was him, some of that was her, but they were married for 20 years, and then she moved into the city to the Lincoln Towers, where you grew up. And where I had an apartment for many years. And just to show you how times have changed, when I was probably 13 years old, I used to take the subway by myself into the city from Riverdale, 242nd Street to... 79th, or I used to get off at 72nd Street, walk down to Lincoln Towers, have dinner with her, and take the subway home myself. Meanwhile, I'm in my kid's schoolyard. It's got <laughs> 10-foot fences all around. If I don't see him for one second, I'm like, where is he? Hey, my kids weren't allowed to, like, ride their bikes in the neighborhood because, you know, by themselves. It was not allowed. So it was different, different Did times. Did your mom remarry? My mom never remarried, but she she found peace in her life, and she she needed to be... You know, in order to survive, she needed to get out of that. It was just too intense for her. You know, it was a very public life, you know, and she needed more privacy. And she and I had a very good relationship right to the very end. And and in the end, she had a pretty decent relationship with my stepmother, which is also unusual. They got along well because, as I said, everybody had the best intentions. But uh, it's funny what you say. What I remember... When I was maybe 11 or 12, there was a song Cher had on the radio. This is what happens in life. And it was called, I think the title of it was You Better Sit Down, Kids. And it was it was a song about a woman telling her child that she was leaving. And that's what my mother was thinking. And it made me, you know, I would just burst into tears every night in my bed. WMCA in New York, they play You Better Sit Down, Kids. And I, I haven't talked about that. I'm... 59 now what is that 47 years hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business that's why i'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success 
to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I still remember it like I'm in the bed listening to the song. It was devastating. You remember that song? No. I do. You do remember? I remember Half Breathe. I remember all Devin's, the songs. Okay. It's not in my mind. That song would exist. I am an elderly man. I Cher was a pop star. You guys probably don't remember that. Yes. She had some good songs. Fantastic song. Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. But, you know, she, she just, like, became such a spectacle, people forget she was actually, they were a pretty decent musical act, right? Talking about our theme here of taking all your talents and going for it, it should be noted that she also won an Academy Award for Moonstruck. Wow, she sure did. Now, let me say this, and I'd be curious to you just to digress for a second. Please, I'm Tell all about digression. in your life that affected you equally to that, to what I just told you, a piece of music that changed your life, or when you think of it, you get emotional, and why? The song that comes to mind, as many people on this podcast know, I was married uh long ago and my wife passed away after eight months and our wedding song was always and forever wow. and that's a song whenever i hear it and i just heard it the other day recorded originally by heatwave that's <laughs> right always and forever heatwave <laughs> and i hear that and there's something that happens but also when i was in college and i was just starting my freshman year in sleeper hall at boston university there was this football player that was in the room next to mine who was African-American. And he had this turntable and this musical setup that was so loud. And over and over again, he would play the song Wishing on a Star by Rose Royce. And I thought to myself, you know, that song and one that I played over and over again that meant the most to me, which I have the poster signed behind my desk, was Dream On. And to me, it was always about, you know, after that tragedy, it was always about, you know, in my later life, figuring out how you recover from the tragedy when you're thinking that everything is going to go a certain way and it doesn't go and you have to readjust your life and you have to be flexible. But early on, it was about being a dreamer and not being afraid to, to follow whatever your dream was, like you said. Uh, you know, the, interestingly enough, the cinematic equivalent to the share song was, and all these things happened around the time it was happening to me, which is bizarre, but it was Kramer versus Kramer, oh. which is a classic film with Dustin Hoffman. And, and I remember watching that movie and, and watching Dustin Hoffman trying to make eggs for his kid because Meryl Streep has left and it just breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart. And, and it was particularly powerful for me it was a little bit later it wasn't happening as it was happening the way the song was but it brought back all those memories instantly and i think that's kind of the gold of of a great film or a great song and i think we're losing that and i'm sorry about that it makes me very sad because uh, all power to the marvel movies and fantastic numbers and we are in a business and everybody has a right to make a fortune but when I saw the deer hunter, just total digression. I came out of the theater and I came home and told my parents if I was drafted, I was going to go to Canada because I wasn't going to be the guy in the ditch sticking his head above the water. John Savage. Yeah, that wasn't going to be me. And that movie made the decision for me. 
And I, I think that's the power of the medium. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if Kramer versus Kramer made people rethink divorce, like that, that's a power. That's, that's, that's a fantastic creative power. And I, I, I worry sometimes that we're, we're losing some of that. How's that for a digression? Uh, it was fantastic. I'm going to make you tell me one thing. Yes. Take me back to the day that your mom and dad told you that they were getting a divorce. How did it happen? <laughs> well, they didn't have to tell me because we had two staircases in our house. There was a front staircase near the front door and there was a back staircase near the back door. And they would be in the kitchen fighting and I would be at the top of the stairs listening to the fights. So I would hear arguments reverberating and it was clear to me and this is something you hear from children of divorce sometimes is that when they finally said they were parting ways it's almost a relief because of everything you've heard leading up to that point so it, it didn't it wasn't like it was some big surprise it, i knew it was coming from hearing those voices come up the stairs now i'll tell you something else again digression I'm renaming uh, this podcast Digression, digression with Barry Katz. We had help in our house. Uh, and we had an African-American maid named Katie who lived at our house for four or five days a week who I became closer to than my mother, honestly, at some point. Because she was present and she took care of me and uh, she had great soul. And we would sit in her, she had a small room at the end of the hall, much smaller than my little bedroom. And I would go in her room and we would watch television together. Very often comedies, variety shows, whatever she wanted to watch. We would watch. And later in life, I kind of connected her a little bit to big mama. She was my big mama. Right. And I was very comfortable with her. And I was also very comfortable at school playing basketball, uh, I went to a private school in New York, and, and there were a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of Jewish basketball players. There were some. A lot, there were a lot of uh, there were kids, and there was a dorm, so there were minority kids that were brought in who 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 could who could go to the school for free, and they would open the gym on the weekends, and I would play basketball every weekend with all these kids that were there on scholarship, and um, you know maybe it sounds a little preposterous now, but I was very, very, very comfortable with African-Americans like growing up because I had this kind of big mom in the house and I was friends with all these kids in the dorm. And then later out here, I ended up working with Martin Lawrence three times, Eddie Murphy. I worked with Denzel. I worked with so many African-Americans and I was comfortable immediately. And that's something you don't hear people talk about a lot. But I would say that the divorce may have been you know, a very challenging thing to go through, but it, it created the ability in me to work with all different kinds of people comfortably. So the thing that you were most afraid of, the most painful experience in your life, that might be the thing that makes you capable of producing three Martin Lawrence movies, you know? It always is. The thing that blows the hole through you is the, things that the thing that shapes you. Yeah. All right, let's do a little six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody. And you just tell me what comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a story, could be anything. Sure. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I've had the, I had the pleasure of working with Pierce twice. 
And the thing I love about him is, is, uh, he's just one of the, he's like a, he's like, he's like a, a wonderful, uh, cashmere blanket in your house that you love to put on when the fire's roaring. He's just the most comfortable guy to be around and he's great looking and he's funny and he's, he's a, a legitimate friend of mine, which I can only say about him and maybe one or two other actors, but he is my friend and I have enormous respect for him. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Kind of astounding is the word that comes to mind. Uh, living proof that you can be anything you want. That's about all I'm getting. <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, uh, I, I have enormous respect for his courage. I did a movie with him that was called For Love or Money that was about a concierge before he was sick or knew that he had Parkinson's. He was a he was a, a very generous person then and an even more generous person now and and I just think he has all the all the best intentions and is is a really fine person. I have enormous respect for him. Meg Ryan. <laughs> well, I uh, I thought we did a, a very smart piece of casting with her. The first thing I think of is her in a helmet in Courage Under Fire. When you say Meg Ryan, I think of Meg with the short haircut and going to the airport and picking her up myself, a direct connection to the concert promotion days where the transpo captain said to me on Courage Under Fire, no, we'll go get her. I said, no, no, I'm going to go pick her up. I want her to see I've got her back. And nobody gave me that. And she couldn't believe that I came to the airport to pick her up. And Dennis Quaid and she were married at the time. And he and I would go off and play golf on the weekends together. So that's my, that's what I think of when you say Meg Ryan. Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. What a strange, long, strange trip it's been. So the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers were two of the most popular bands for me when I was in high school. We would, we would go to that dorm I mentioned earlier and turn the speakers around play the speakers out the window after school. And it was always the Allman brothers and the dead and Jerry Garcia wound up becoming this kind of figure in my life. I, I listened to him in high school. I went to see the dead a few times. Uh, I booked him at Northwestern and on the day that my son had that somewhat painful procedure, newborns have yes at the bris the, the circumcision bris, the circumcision we came out of that i was holding my son i got in the car turned on the radio and the news came on that jerry garcia had died that morning so he has been a, he was a part of my life uh consistently to the point where i actually had tickets to go see the final dead shows but because he wasn't in it i ended up not going through with it, not going up to Santa Clara to see them, but they were, they were part of the sort of the sound. He was sort of the soundtrack of my life. Walter Matthau. Oh my God. Um, my, my first thought about Walter was we were doing out to sea and, uh, this will sometimes happen. You have actors for a certain period of time and then you run the risk of breaking into their turnaround, which is a no, no. You have to give them and say port, they call it portal to portal. Maybe it's 11 hours from the time you wrap to when they have to come back. And we needed his permission to go a little longer. And uh, uh, 
I went to him. I was dispatched to go to him and ask him if he would stay an extra hour. And he said, I noticed you have a satellite dish in your trailer. I said, yes. He said, is there any action on tonight? And I said, well, have you mentioned it? Like Cincinnati is playing Tulane. Who's favored? And I said, uh, well, I looked in the paper. Tulane is minus two and a half. He goes, all right, I'll stay. I'll get a bet down. And he made a bet, and I let him go in my trailer, and he stuck around. <laughs> That's my thought of Walter Math. Oh, and a Walter Matthau joke. He walked up to me once on the set. We were shooting on a cruise ship. The movie Out to Sea took place on a cruise ship, and we shot for 10 days in the Caribbean on an actual cruise ship. And he walked up to me, and he said, did you know Beethoven was so deaf he thought he was painting? That was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for its simplicity. And last thing about Walter Matthau, when he died, uh, he had a, uh, a poker game at his house, and I love poker, and he, he showed me the poker room once, and all these guys had a little leather cup that had the name of the player in masking tape on the cup. And so it said Matthau, Carson, all these famous people. And um, when he passed, his assistant gave me the cup with his name on it. I still have it. I keep pens in it. It says Matthau. Wow. That's a lot on Walter Matthau, right? I loved him. Loved him. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, I, I, I cannot tell you. She's like, she's like the female Ron Howard. The, the focus, the attention, the work ethic. Uh, and... She's just there to do the job and enormous talent. That's what comes to mind. Just enormous, enormous talent. And, and the, the job she did on the Still Alice, I think, you know, was so deserving and I'm very proud of her. Eddie Murphy. Might be the funniest person I've ever met, period. Like, you know, I tell people this. It, it, it's the craziest thing to say. If you ever want to see the genius of this man, which is evident throughout history. But you can go back and look at the outtakes of Nutty Professor. They ran them at the on, over the end credits. And every time I watch that, I am reduced to tears. It's the funny, he's playing all the characters, and they're all cracking up. <laughs> the takes are being blown. His ad-libs are hilarious. And you, you realize... Maybe the funniest person I've ever met. Dan Rather. Well, Dan Rather was my favorite when I was growing up. Like, he was the guy that I thought was the coolest anchor. I liked the suspenders. I liked his look. I liked him stylistically. And it was, uh, he was an important, influential figure in my life. He, uh. He made me realize that journalists didn't have to be square. Greg Kinnear. Okay. One of my, probably my, one of my very, very best friends. And I said, I would only say this about two actors. I think Pierce and Greg, they're, they're genuine friends of mine. Uh, Greg is somebody that uh, I always laugh with, uh, whether he, he, you know, we, we play golf together. We hang out. He's of the same generation. We both came out of this channel called Movie Time. I was doing a talk show like you're doing. He was doing Talk Soup. And we became great friends and remain 
very, very close friends. Denzel Washington. Serious. Serious guy. Uh, I'll tell a story about Denzel. We were on the aforementioned Courage Under Fire, and, and we decided to shoot 10 straight days so that we could all have a break at Thanksgiving. This is a thing you can do in scheduling. Instead of, like, we were on six-day weeks, so instead of, like, doing regular six-day weeks, we went 10 straight nights. It was in the desert in El Paso. It never got above 15 degrees. And Ed Zwick was the kind of director who said, if I'm going to be there, you're going to be there. So you worked from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and you stayed. And it was snowing and cold and horrible. And at that point, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a producer. So at the end of uh, that 10-day stint, we we shot this sequence where um, uh, there was a gag on the railroad track and a car Mustang collides with a train. And it was very intense and and. And that great actor from that scene on the train tracks was Lou Diamond Phillips. He was fantastic. And uh, anyway, on that day, on the last day of the 10 days, uh, somebody kind of, I think it was Ed, whispered in my ear that Denzel had a plane going back to L.A. and there might be room for me. And I should go ask Denzel, which was kind of hard as a young guy. Like I hadn't, don't think I'd ever been on a private plane. Like, this is a jet. And he was a method actor, and he was in character. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And this was a very intense character. And I went up to him and I said, in between takes, hey, I heard that you might have a plane. Is it possible there'd be room for me? And he looked up at me and he just stared at me. And it was just dead quiet. And he gave me this look like I couldn't believe I was even asking. And he just like gauged my reaction. And then he broke into this big smile and he goes, of course, come along. <laughs> and it was just, you saw the power of the man. He made me so uncomfortable for just asking. And then he gave me a ride. But I saw the power of an actor. And, and by the way, uh, just an enormous talent. I, I love his work. There's very few people who I would see every piece of work they do, and it's his because when I met him briefly on sets, 
it seems like every second of every moment of every day, he is a thousand percent prepared and in it. And there's no messing around. He's tough though. I'll say this about him. Like, he doesn't let you off easy. If you say something stupid, he's going to tell you how stupid it is. And, you know, he kind of has you on guard a little <laughs> bit, which I like about him. And the thing about Denzel, I'll, I'll tell one other little anecdote about that scene. So the Mustang hits this oncoming train, and it's, it's an actual, as we call it, a gag. A stunt is a gag. I don't know where that came from, but it's called a gag. And so when the train hits the Mustang, and we... We knew this from rehearsal and everything that they would sort of like bounce off each other and the and the Mustang would would sort of come back on the track. And the idea was that Denzel, as soon as the train hit, he's supposed to go off the tracks into the woods there because it, it could be dangerous. And because he's Denzel, he, he sees the thing collide and he just stays. And if you watch the shot, the movie, the train comes, the car comes back, it's on fire. And it just goes right by him. He's like a foot away from it, which he was not supposed to do, but made the shot great. That's a great actor, right? What instinct? What instinct? Me, the Jew from Riverdale, I'm running into the woods. (laughs) (laughs) Not walking, running. A few more, the Beach Boys. Ah, well, I learned a great lesson from the Beach Boys. They came to Northwestern. They were supposed to play on a Saturday. The place was sold out. I'm ready to do my introduction. They come to me 15 minutes before the show, the road manager, and he says, little problem, not huge. Mike Love, the lead singer, didn't make the plane. But everybody else is here. (laughs) And he says, you know, we can either go on and play without Mike or we'll come back in two weeks and do two shows for the price of one. And, and again, cocky, young, maybe 19 years old. I said, we didn't hire some of the Beach Boys. We hired the Beach Boys. So we'll see in two weeks. I had to get up on stage and tell this crowd of 10,000 people that there was going to be no concert tonight. But anybody who was there could come to both shows for, the, for free, for the same price. And because they were college kids, it really wasn't a problem. <laughs> well, I'm surprised you didn't say, listen. No, what's going to happen is these guys are going to play tonight and you're going to give me one show in two weeks with everybody. That probably is why you wound up doing what you did and I wound up doing what I did. That was probably a better solution, right? Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon was just pure class, but very hard. Unlike Mathau, hard to, hard to really get to know. Uh, elegant professional right there happy to engage but didn't get a lot out of him martin lawrence uh brilliant complicated unpredictable hilarious little miss sunshine trust your instincts little miss sunshine was a movie that every studio and every specialty division passed on the script and we bought it for I think $150,000 at the time, and it became the biggest success of my career, and everybody else had passed on it. Trust your instincts. Fantastic. Tell us about the movie that is coming out that you are that you wrote, directed, produced, brought coffee to people on, drove the people around. <laughs> to do that. 
called Sneakerheads. Tell us about okay. that. So Sneakerheads is a documentary that examines the subculture of, of collecting kicks. And uh, we don't know what collecting kicks are. We're yeah. Like, well, sneakers are called kicks. That's the the. Uh, Did all of you know that? Okay, I'm retarded. I'm 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 special. I'm sorry. Um, and this this documentary happened because I stumbled into an Adidas original store in New York while we were making the honeymooners with Mike Epps and Cedric the Entertainer. One of the biggest flops in my career. <laughs> But I love I loved making it. I had a blast making it. And I, and I, was, I have no idea when I heard that you were doing the honeymooners with Mike Epps and Cedric the Entertainer. And Gabrielle Union, who and, I love. And no disrespect to and Mike John Epps Leguizamo. and Cedric the Entertainer and, and John Leguizamo. Johnny Legs, as we called him. But I think to myself, you know, Jackie Gleason <laughs> is a fucking genius. It's like you, and you're doing it, the African-American. I thought to myself, what is it? So I thought sometimes you do things for the money and sometimes you do things yeah. for the respect. Will you just tell our audience, and I know you're going to kill me for saying this, what Why? were you thinking? Here's what I was thinking. The studio called and they said, your script, The Honeymooners, we'll make it, but we want you to do it African-American. You've done a lot of movies with African-American cast. We think this one would be great. I'm like, this is going to get the movie made. <laughs> Maybe it's not a bad idea. Not my best moment thinking. <laughs> But, you know, it was the biggest fee I ever got was on that movie. It was the one time my fee reached this certain level. I'm not going to talk about money. And I got there, and I knew if if they made that movie, that was going to be my quote, and it was. And you do things for lots of reasons, sometimes the wrong reasons. In that that case, it was a bad decision, and I, I have to own it. It was me as well. I could have easily said, I think that's a terrible idea. I didn't. We went and made the movie, and I watch it, and I still think it's funny. That's how crazy I am. I enjoyed making well, there it. Are I fun, love those guys. But there are funny, funny moments in, in there. Yeah, of course there's, there's funny, funny moments. Stuff in it, but now, not a good idea. Now, knowing what you know now about the movie, you're there, you get the offer of that quote, the highest quote you've ever gotten, but you can see into the future, mm-hmm. and you can see exactly what's going to happen with the movie. Do you still take the offer? No, absolutely not. Failure really hurts. Uh, <laughs> It hurts you personally, and it hurts your career. You become kind of, you go from the hot guy to the cold guy. And then it's, you know, as my father used to say, it's what have you done for me lately? You come back with something good, like Little Miss Sunshine, all of a sudden they don't even remember the honeymooners. You know, everybody's forgotten it. But failure definitely, definitely gets in the way. Um, So back to the movie. So I'm in New York making the African-American honeymooners which we all both agree was not the best idea. And I stumble into Adidas Originals, and I see a pair of, of uh, Adidas superstars, but it's the Run DMC model. It's a custom superstar. And I think I'm looking at a pair of shoes that are 35 years old. But what I didn't know, it was what they call a retro. It was. They brought the sneaker back out. It was chocolate brown. And I said, I am buying these sneakers and I took them home, and I started looking around on the computer. At, at I just typed in Adidas Superstars, and I saw there were websites devoted just to this one shoe, and there were blogs. And I just immediately it was like a, it was like a cloud right in front of me. I'm going to do a documentary about this if I ever have the time. Simultaneously, things got a little quiet in the business for me. There was nothing in production. I was used to like movie to movie to movie to movie, and I started to go a little stir crazy. And I thought if I can just raise 
some money, I can just go out and make this. And I'm going to do that. And so that was the beginning of what I call my do-it-yourself mentality, which, by the way, fed my TV show, Queen of the South, and it fed my movie, IT, because none of those projects really involved the traditional studio. Awesome. Awesome. When does that come out? It's coming out August 7th in New York and L.A. I never thought we'd have a theatrical. I thought it was just going to be SBOD. Uh, but it got such a good response. We got picked up by Gravitas, the distributor at South by Southwest. And we're opening in New York, Chicago, and L.A. for like two weeks. And then you can catch it on Vimeo. Or if you're an AT&T U-verse subscriber, you can see it on there. And then eventually it'll be on everything, iTunes and all that. Fantastic. Last three questions. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how did you use it to bring yourself to the next level? It's hmm. a great question. It's a hard question because any real career, in my opinion, has had success, failure, and in between. Anybody who hasn't experienced all three of those things hasn't really had a, a real career. Somebody who wants you to believe that every movie was a hit is not really telling the truth. Somebody wants you to believe that it's all been failure, hasn't been around very long. So if you've had any career of real duration, you've had all three. Uh, I've had, you know, some pretty big disappointments. I'd say the biggest one for me was I got an early read on The Help. This was really difficult for me. Uh, the and, movie, The Help. Yeah, and I went to, I sought out the director, and it, it was a little bit in the embryonic stages, and it wasn't clear what was going to happen. And I went and had lunch with Tate Taylor, and I pitched him on me producing the movie. And they hadn't really decided whether I, they would do it with me. And... I got nervous. I, I got nervous I was going to lose out, and I went to see Stacy Snyder at DreamWorks. And they were already going a different direction, and by doing that, I kind of alienated the, the team there. And it was not me in my finest hour. My intentions were all good, but I didn't handle myself the best way I could, and I didn't get to produce it. And it was a book that I just, I just loved and would have loved to have been part of that. It was a, it was a loss. But didn't Stacy Snyder, who's the president of DreamWorks, didn't she know why you were coming into the office to meet her? Oh, yeah. She knew. She knew what I wanted. So then but, how could you? But work? she she just, you know, I, they couldn't make it work. You know, it wasn't going to happen with me. No I matter know. what I did. I know. So why did she take the meeting? I don't even remember specifically if I called and said, I need to come talk to you about this project, or I just came in and this is what we talked about. But it wasn't in the cards for me on that one, and it, and it was. I felt like I was there early enough to have gotten there, and I didn't, and those are tough. Uh, another one was In the Line of Fire. That was it. I was, I was pitched In the Line of Fire, I'd imagine, and passed and should not have, obviously. I'm sure. not very good on failure because I don't dwell on it. I just don't. I move on. I, I, I can tell you lots more. Stories about wins. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. In a second. But I, but but I, I think it's a very good question. But my brain isn't like sitting there replaying these things. I move on pretty well. I think you have to. Your proudest moment in show business. Um, I don't know if it was my proudest moment, but the most excited I probably ever was was uh, waking up at four o'clock in the morning uh, 
uh, two dogs on the bed. Both kids had come into the room and we put on the announcement of the Academy Award nominations and they said Little Miss Sunshine and there was a scream that came out uh, out the window where if you were in the neighborhood you probably thought somebody was being murdered. But that was probably the most exciting moment. Awesome. And finally, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town, not knowing what they're going to do with their life and how to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you have? And coincidentally, if there's talent out there, what advice do you have for the young actor or actress who's well, I would, trying to I get would to the next say, level as well? I would well? say it all applies to everything, which is A, something I said earlier, trust your instincts and find your passion. If you're passionate about something and you believe in yourself, you can get others to, to let you join the party. But if you don't have that passion and you don't believe in yourself, you will never make it. So when you walk in the room, you have to own it, that you belong there and that, you know, this was destiny. And then you have to run through the wall and keep running through the wall. And, and the last piece of advice is just stay in the game. The minute you, leave the table you cannot win but if you stay in the game you're not going to win every hand you're going to lose some hands you're going to win some hands but you will have your moment but if you if you walk away from it you can't win so keep playing that's what i say awesome (laughs) david friendly is this your first podcast it's my first podcast and i have to say barry you're an excellent interviewer and, and i found myself talking about things that I don't think I ever thought I would talk about on this show, so you must be pretty good at your job. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. you get out the money Drop that fancy car all the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.